Welcome to the Access Hour, where each week we offer you the opportunity to take command of the airwaves. Everyone is invited to submit their program ideas by calling the station at 256-2001. Do it now during the show or during normal business hours. We'd like this show to be as unpredictable as possible, so we need your creative ideas. It's a fair trade. You give us your muse, and we give you the facilities and any help you need to get your show airborne. So get those synapses firing, and when the inspiration for some phenomenal radio lights your creative bulb, pick up the phone and call us. Right now, it's time to begin another foray into the freest form program on the WORT schedule, the Access Hour. Welcome to the Access Hour. My name is Thistle Pedersen, and tonight my guests joining me by phone are Sheila Jeffries, lesbian feminist author of the book Gender Hurts, a feminist analysis of the politics of transgenderism. Jeffries is professor of feminist politics in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to the program, Sheila. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you, Thistle. And we also have Elizabeth Hungerford joining us from Massachusetts, where she is a lawyer and lesbian feminist activist. 
Ms. Hungerford co-penned the infamous letter to the UN on the status of women in 2011, in 2011, which caused quite a stir. She will be telling us about that letter later on in the program. Welcome, Elizabeth. Are you there? Oh, it looks like my engineer, the engineer is trying to get her on the line. And then later on in the program, we will also have Blake Abney joining us by phone from New York to talk about her experiences with being transgender and what it has been like to detransition and join support circles for other women like her. So um, to start off the program, I'm going to ask Professor Jeffries some questions about her theory and her book. Professor Jeffries, what is gender and how is it different from transgender? And secondly, how did you come up with the title for your book? Yes. Now, the important thing to start off with is to say that gender is very different from sex because a lot of people confuse the two, particularly these days on forms and so on, where you're asked to state your gender, whereas, in fact, they really mean your sex. Biological sex is not the reason that men have dominance over women because having a penis makes no particular difference. But it's gender that is the mechanism that organizes male domination because it stratifies uh, men and women and it says that men, um, it, it, it maintains male rule by creating different stereotypes for the way men and women behave. Um, the behavior of men, for instance, is masculine dominance, strength, aggression, and superiority, and so on. Women are expected to behave in dress, um, dress in ways which signify that they're subordinate, that they are sex objects, that they are not as good at uh, governing or being in business, that they um, have a different way of thinking, and so on. So what's called gender femininity for women is, is the behavior of subordination. Now, the difference for, of all of this, or the connection with transgenderism, is that transgenderism is a very recent practice which develops from this whole system of gender. If you don't have gender, if you don't have idea, the idea that men and women are completely different and behave in completely different ways, you can't transgender, so you can't have transgenderism. Persons who transgender very often, well, always pretty much, have the ideology that gender is something natural, that it's natural for men and women to behave in different ways. And in this way, that maintains male dominance and maintains this whole system of dominance of men over women. The book Gender Hurts, I wrote because I was aware of the significant harm that the practice of transgenderism at this point in history was doing. Particularly, of course, it starts off by doing harm to those who are identified by the medical profession, because, of course, it's a diagnosis of the medical profession in the end, and a medical profession is about constructing society in conservative ways through its diagnosis. Uh, the persons who transgender are harmed by the drugs that they take, which are very profitable to the drug companies and to the medicos, and they're harmed by the surgeries. And these harms are cumulative over time. Also, transgenderism is harmful uh, because of the way that transgenders themselves behave in terms of relationships. The wives of men who transgender are harmed uh, through having to overturn their lives and pr pretend that they believe in a lie and so on in their relationships and suffer serious psychological harms. 
children suffer from the idea of transgenderism because more and more there's this idea that if children play with the wrong toys or associate with the wrong playmates, they must be transgender and children are being put on drugs from as young as nine or ten years old to delay puberty so that they can go on to transgender, which is an extraordinary abuse by the medical profession. And transgenderism is also harmful to women's rights because those who transgender create a clash with rights if, if they are men who transgender and say that they need to be in all women's spaces, including toilets and prisons and so on. And it creates a big problem for lesbians. It harms the lesbian community by stating that sort of a lot of lesbians are not really lesbians but men. And it harms feminism by attacking the very basis of feminism, which is the idea that sex roles are wrong because it upholds sex roles and tries to protect them. And that's why I call the book Gender Hurts, because I'm aware of all these different ways in which transgenderism is harmful and does hurt. Yes, uh, but what if I really want to or I really feel the need to dress in men's clothing and identify as a man? How is that harming anyone? Don't I have the right to express myself and become who I really am, even if it means injecting hormones or getting genital surgeries? Shouldn't I be able to do with my body what um, I feel I need to do? Uh, what do you say to people when they say, I have friends and family who are transgender and they are good people. Radical feminism is hateful towards them. The important thing to recognize is that transgenderism is a re recent invention from the second half of the 20th century. So you can't really be transgender in some sense that you're essentially or biologically transgender. It's a fashionable diagnosis and practice at this particular point in history, and it's a social construction. I, I see it as a, a social or cultural folly of this particular moment in history. For instance, uh, back in the 1970s, um, we actually wanted to get role, rid of sex role stereotypes. We said anybody should be able to wear a dupe and appear in any way that they like. I mean, men should obviously be allowed to wear skirts if women are, and women should obviously be allowed to wear trousers and so on. The problem with transgenderism is that it is loyalty to and the promotion of an idea that certain behaviors are suitable for men and certain behaviors are suitable for women. The politics of feminism are liberatory. It says that nobody has to be restricted into straitjackets of that kind. Anyone can behave in ways that, that they wish to. You know, they can climb trees or run companies if they're women and if they're men. Um, they can be interested in knitting and so on. It doesn't mean they've changed their sex because you can't change your sex. It's biological and you can't change it. So feminism is a liberation philosophy. But when people do transgenderism, they do very much more than dressing up in particular clothing they may like. Of course, there's hormones, surgery, harm to their partners, community, to children who are transgender, all of those things I've just mentioned. So people individually saying, I just happen to be transgender, and what's the problem with that, are not recognizing they're part of a particular phenomenon at this point in history, which is harmful. Uh, Ms. Jeffries, radical feminists are criticized for denying the existence of transgender people when we state the fact that men are not women and women are not men on, that, on a biological level. What do you say to people who say feminists are, quote-unquote, erasing or denying their existence? 
Transgenderism is a social construction which is justified by a particular kind of political ideology, the idea that men and women are different in political ways, for instance. So feminists disagree with that political ideology. They don't erase anybody. When there are political disagreements, nobody gets erased. For instance, I'm critical of religion, but I don't erase Christians. But Christians have an ideology that they're very fond of. So transgenderism is... Uh, absolutely backed up by an ideology that feminists disagree with. And uh, transgender activists, for instance, try to prevent disagreement with their ideology uh, because they call criticism hate and they try to prevent any kind of criticism on the grounds that it's somehow hateful or erasing. It's political criticism. We need to be able to debate ideas. Absolutely. I agree with you. Could you uh, tell us what the ideology of transgenderism is. The ideology of transgenderism is that there are particular stereotypical characteristics identified by being, with being male or female, and that it's possible somehow biologically or essentially to be born with the wrong characteristics, which mean actually you could change from one to the other. In fact, of course, it's something that persons do as adults. It's nothing to do with biology. But it is very harmful because it maintains the idea of these stereotypes. And in that sense, it's very, very, very basically anti-feminist because feminism is at bottom and at basis about getting rid of those stereotypes. Uh, in in my community here in Madison, I've heard uh, trans supporters um, say that transgender breaks down stereotypes, that it's um, creating a fluidity between the genders, so that you can be you can be more expressive and more um, free to be yourself. So you're breaking down stereotypes. Um, so. How can you, how can you uh, talk to that point, please? Unfortunately, well, it, it's clearly the case that transgenderism can't exist without gender. Feminists are about getting rid of gender. We're about getting rid of the stratification system and getting rid of the rigid boxes that say people have to behave in a certain way. But without the idea of gender, transing it doesn't make sense. You can't trans something which doesn't exist. So indeed, transgenderism is not fluid. There's absolutely nothing fluid about what persons who think they're transgender do to their bodies. Many of the, the harms they do to their bodies are absolutely permanent. There's nothing um, fluid about taking hormones, nothing fluid about binding breasts and potentially harming yourself in that way. So transgenderism isn't fluid. It's about boxes, definitely about boxes. I think what might be happening, though, and why people go on about gender fluidity is we're at a time there's a considerable changes in the between men and women, which, and these changes are actually challenging the way men and women are supposed to behave. Transgenders, unfortunately, uh, go back to the boxes, whereas feminists are actually saying they need to break them down. Be, you can't really be fluid about gender. You can't have a little bit of dominance, that is a little bit of masculinity, and a little bit of femininity, which is a little bit of subordination. The important thing is to get rid of the dominance and subordination altogether so that everybody can behave in the ways they would like to behave. All right. Well, that sounds like liberation politics to me. Um, thank you so much for that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, and in it, you spend a lot of time um, talking about the female wives of men who transgender and how it impacts the, their wives and their children. Could you, um, could you talk a, a bit about that? And then after talking about heterosexual couples um, where the male transgenders. Could you talk about um, the impact of transgendering on lesbian couples? 
certainly thistle. Now, the the majority of men who decide that they're going to transgender are actually cross-dressers. That is, they've got a sexual fetish and interest in female clothing, so-called, and the body parts of women. Now, it's been estimated, for instance, that about 2% of the male population in the States have this um, interest. What's happened recently is that more and more of men with, with these interests, who previously would just have cross-dressed on the weekend for a, or for a couple of hours in the week, are now transgendering. And this is a very serious problem for wives. The wives may never even have known they were cross-dressers. Or they may have known that they were cross-dressers, but not expected their husbands would go on to actually transgender. When the men transgender, they say that their wives now have to call them by female names. They need to recognize that they're now lesbians, and so on and so on. All of this is enormously distressing to wives, and some um, therapists have argued that the the wives suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, They lose their partner in the sense of the person they ever knew. Their lives are overturned. They have a great concern for what it will mean for their children. Their lives get reoriented around looking after this partner's uh, particular sexual practice in terms of the money that's spent on it in the family, the fact that the women have to often do the injections, organize the medical care, and so on. Uh, Women don't feel able to use the female pronouns towards these men that they've had several children with and have been with for 10, 20, 30 years, and they then can sometimes get quite abused because they refuse to do this. They're expected to take part in a kind of folie à deux. The man has gone into a particular state in his mind and developed an e-day fix, and the woman is supposed to actually support him. Uh, There's... Um, there's a, a, a problem that women often don't get any sympathy at all because there's such a support of men's rights to do whatever they wish to do, and transgendering is one of the things that many of them wish to do, that they get no support in their community, so often women feel very alone. When we move on to what happens to the, again, women who are the partners of lesbians who transgender, it uh, it's, needs to be recognized that the vast majority of women who transgender are lesbians, whereas the majority of the men who transgender are ordinary heterosexual men. It's very different, and indeed the phenomenon of transgenderism is very, very different amongst lesbians generally. In the 1970s, when I became a lesbian, feminists uh, were accused of wanting to be men, and certainly lesbians were seen as wanting to be men. We, of course, said that we were proudly women, but we're now in very dark and conservative times when there are there is a percentage of lesbians who are now deciding that they it's better to call themselves men uh, in the 1970s, there was no transgenderism amongst lesbians. It simply didn't exist. It's a very, very recent phenomenon, and we need to ask politically and historically why it's taking place now. Once upon a time in the 1970s, 1980s, lesbians could be equal. Um, we sought to be equal in relationships. Now it's possible for one to adopt the privilege of being masculine. Now, what does this mean for lesbian community, lesbian events, and so on? Who goes? Does the the lesbian who now says they're a man go to lesbian events? Does the woman who's now been heterosexualized by the fact that her partner now says that she is a man, does she go to lesbian events? So it's very destructive in that way of lesbian community. It's not really possible to have lesbian pride in communities where uh, a group of lesbians are actually saying that they're men. And it makes feminism very, very difficult in, in that situation. Lesbian feminism that I was involved in was about extraordinary pride in being women and in being lesbians. Couples are divided uh, when one hormonally and surgically constructs that couple as heterosexual because the couple is actually heterosexualized. It's very, very, very old-fashioned 
dinosaur politics in which lesbians are reconstructed as heterosexual couples and family. And I really find it hard to understand how that could be seen as progressive. Uh, it's very destructive of lesbianism because the lesbianism of the women who transgender their lesbianism is actually destroyed hormonally and physically. Uh, once upon a time as lesbian feminists, we loved our bodies, we loved ourselves as women, we loved other women as women. What seems to be happening now in some parts of the lesbian community is that lesbianism itself is becoming second rate because in those communities, masculinity is valorized, male is seen as best, and the extraordinary pride that we had in being lesbians at one time is being very seriously undermined. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen that on the ground here um, at the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Um, it's, you know, this this topic, this phenomena has been very divisive um, amongst lesbians and in, in lesbian culture. Um, so, yeah, thank you for, for pointing that out. Um, statistically, how many more men transgender compared to women? And what's the social significance of this when considering male supremacy? Uh, I've also read online that quite a high percentage of the men who transgender are either in the military or formerly were in the military. Why is this? The statistics have regularly shown, really, over the last 30 or 40 years, that the rate of men transgendering to that of women is three men to every woman. It's surprising that's not changing, perhaps, but that does seem to be the same even now. If we look at, for instance, who applies for gender recognition certificates in the UK, it is three men to each woman. Now, uh, the this seems to have been general indeed. The sexologists estimate that the majority of men who transgender are cross-dressers, as I've been saying. And the minority have always been homosexuals, unhappy homosexuals. The interesting thing is that the fact that homosexuals are still, male homosexuals are still transgendering and that lesbians are, gives the lie to the success of gay liberation. And it's really astonishing that gay organizations support it because it is a very terrible punishment for being gay. And it is actually the physical extermination of gayness. But unfortunately, we are in a time period when many lesbian and gay organizations uh, actually support this extraordinary anti-gay practice. Um, women, as I said, are very different from men in transgendering. They are mostly lesbians. The, the men who cross-dress, as you point out, are generally quite masculine men. One can't, of course, completely generalize about any of these things, but they are often men who are, who's, have seen themselves as very masculine and had great success um, in masculinity in their lives, in the army, for instance. Um, for many of these men, I think masochistic fantasies and masochistic feelings are shameful. For instance, the masochistic excitement they might get from wearing a, what they associate with a woman's knickers and so on. So they may, and some of them certainly are, going trans. They're pretending to be really women, supposedly, because I think this is easier for them than relaxing their masculinity and becoming different kinds of men who actually can behave in all kinds of different ways and don't need to be so solidly masculine. So when they become women, it's the opposite of their masculinity. When they become supposedly women, some of them become very bullying towards feminists and lesbians. 
Um, and they become like other men's rights activists. And in fact, the extraordinary aggression that they show does suggest how masculine they are as men, because, of course, feminists and women online do ex uh, experience extraordinary cyber hatred from men and men's rights activists. Often transgender activists express exactly the same kind of violent male aggression as other men do, and that would suggest that they are indeed very, very masculine men, and there's nothing actually feminine or female about them, because actually women don't behave in this bit way online. They simply, simply don't. So uh, I think the men who transgender are often extremely conservative. They're sexist men. They need to be sexist men to believe that there's such a thing as femininity that they can then adopt as men, the idea that women are somehow more intuitive, more uh, into wearing frilly knickers and all, all those kinds of extraordinary stereotypes. So tr men who transgender tend to be very anti-feminist men. They tend to believe in rigid sex roles. And they cannot bear uh, the idea that women are actually rejecting those sex roles because they, so they can become very aggressive towards women and feminists. Interesting, but what I've found here in my community in Madison is that um, trans women are held up as um, feminists. They're 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 trans feminists, and that there's this thing called trans misogyny, um, mm -hmm. and so they the they they don't appear uh, in public at least to to be aggressive and um, violent. Uh, these, you know, these men that have um, taken on the identity of of women. Um, so, w what's going on with that? Uh, some transgender activists have developed an ideology that they call transgender feminism. It's even taught in some universities in the states at this time. Now, transgender feminism uh, is full of the um, ideology we've been talking about before, seeing transgenderism somehow natural or essential or biological, um, which is a kind of strange idea. In, in Britain quite recently, a 63-year-old boxing promoter who had been a boxer and then was promoting boxing decided at the age of 63 he was really a woman. He'd been the most masculine of men all of his life. But, so apparently you can be both absolutely naturally both an incredibly masculine man and an incredibly feminine woman the next day. Uh, but the, this ideology is taught in transgender feminism, and transgender feminism supports femininity because the men who construct it get a great deal of sexual excitement from doing things they consider to be feminine and wearing clothing they consider to be feminine. They get very, very angry at feminists who seek to ch challenge and get rid of sex roles like femininity. So these men say that these, these feminists are dreadful and that these, uh, these transgender activists, such as Julie Serrano, for instance, they say they will protect femininity, the things like frilly knickers and high-heeled shoes and so on, from these dreadful feminists who attack them. Now, of course, it's not feminism at all. The support of sex roles is anti-feminism, but it is very, very unfortunate. I mean, the, the problem is these, these men are able to get their message out. They're often very powerful on the Internet. Many of them are involved in um, social media and so on. And they're often in a position already as lawyers or academics or whatever to be able to put their position across in a way that's very difficult for feminists who are often shut out, shut out, particularly shut out by the trans activists themselves from being able to get access to mediums of communication. So, Sheila, is trans a marginalized, oppressed group? If so, who is oppressing and marginalizing them? 
I think that persons who are trans need not to be discriminated against. They need to be able to wear whatever clothing they like. As I said, men need to be able to wear skirts if they want to do so. If they want to wear high heels in a situation where it's not too dangerous for them to do so, then presumably employers, for instance, should enable that to happen. So in that sense, they should not be marginalized or discriminated against. Um, marginalized, I have no idea who they would be being marginalized by. At the moment, it does seem that the ideology of transgenderism is completely dominant in the media, in legislation, in the medical profession. There's almost no questioning whatsoever of the ideology of transgenderism. Only some feminists seem to be prepared, because they need to for the very future and the possibility of equality of women, to criticize this ideology that's being created. So I cannot imagine that transgender activists feel that feminists are somehow marginalizing them. We don't have the, the power to do any of that. In fact, very generally, we don't have the power to be able to speak because transgender activists are campaigning to close down venues we might wish to speak out speak out to get us off social media and so on. Feminists are in no position to marginalize anyone, anyone, but unfortunately, transgender activists have a great deal of power and are operating it to marginalize feminists. Okay, Sheila, we're going to take a short break and listen to the song that I wrote and recorded for this radio program that was inspired by reading your book. Um, and is Elizabeth on the line? Elizabeth Hungerford, yeah. are you? You're there. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Well, when we come back from the break, it'll be a three-minute song break. I'll start asking you some questions. Thank you so much, my guests. We'll be back in three minutes. Hello. And um, I'm supposed to say the Access Hour is not meant to represent in any way the views or opinions of the WORT Board of Directors, staff, or radio programmers. Gender hurts, it's harmful to girls. Gender hurts, it's painful for the women of the world. The tyranny of male rule taints my every word. Gender hurts, it's harmful. So don't come a-knockin' on my front door. Gender hurts, it's painful for the women of the world. The tyranny of male rule is worse than absurd. Gender hurts, it's harmful. Patriarchal kiss. How will we find what needs to be shown? And after that, where is home? Tell me, where is my home? Cause gender hurts, 
it's harmful to girls. Gender hurts, it's painful for the women of the world. The tyranny of male rule is worse than absurd. Gender hurts, it's harmful. Okay, welcome back. This is the Access Hour on WORT, and I am interviewing Sheila Jeffries. She is a lesbian feminist author and professor of feminist politics at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And I also have Elizabeth Hungerford on the line. She's joining us from Massachusetts, where she's a lawyer and lesbian feminist activist. Ms. Hungerford co-penned the infamous letter to the UN on the status of women in 2011, which caused quite a stir. She'll be talking about that a little bit later on. But first, I wanted to ask you, Elizabeth, what are the implications and in some cases the law changes that are happening um, in terms of homeless shelters, women's colleges, women's health care, women's prisons, women's sports, how does transgender politics impact our institutions and framework for how we approach male and female spaces? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, those are a lot of, it's a very complicated topic. And so I'm going to start by talking about the gender discrimination or gender identity anti-discrimination laws here in the United States. Um, they're about... There are 18 states that have passed one of these laws. Um, and to echo something that Sheila said earlier, um, in theory, this is a very noble pursuit. And um, I agree with Sheila that people should be allowed to wear whatever they want, behave however they want, mannerisms, um, preferences. Um, that is something that uh, feminism is completely in support of. Um, it is primarily the way that these laws are written that I personally have an objection to. Um, and in most contexts, this is not a problem. I absolutely support protection for uh, gender nonconforming and trans-identified people in the context of education, um, housing discrimination, employment, credit, lending practices. These are all things that absolutely people should be protected uh, from discrimination in. Um, the problem becomes when we're talking about sex-segregated spaces, and this gets back to the confusion between sex and gender and using those terms interchangeably. Uh, that's very normal. I think a lot of people would have a hard time differentiating between when to use sex and when to use gender, and this permeates all levels of society up to and including law and institutional policy. Um, and so the way that these 
laws are written are such that the gender identity is to be protected regardless of one's assigned sex at birth. So when we're talking about something like homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, locker rooms, bathrooms, these are traditionally sex-segregated contexts, the gender identity takes priority over the uh, the sex, the physical body of the person. Um, and this is something that is problematic for women um, in, in these circumstances. Um, and that was, you mentioned the UN letter, that was one of the, the big criticisms that the UN letter covered. Um, and then one of the other problems with prioritizing this identity over one sex is that the laws are very vague and loose. Um, there are no measurable criteria to distinguish someone who says that they identify as a woman for a few hours a day versus someone who is permanently living as the opposite sex. So there's no consistency, uh, sincerity. There are no duration requirements. There's, you know, there's no medical treatment required. Um, and by contrast, in the U.K., for example, um, in 2004, they passed the Gender Recognition Act, and there is a significant duration requirement and, uh, and a, an attestation of commitment to this new gender identity. So it's kind of an attempt at ensuring the permanency of the change, whereas here in the U.S., we don't have any of that in our laws. Um, and then you also asked about institutional policies, and this is similar uh, problem um, in, for example, admissions to women's colleges. Those, those admissions policies also do not have any measurable criteria by which to distinguish someone who sincerely and consistently presents as a woman but who has a male body versus someone who maybe is not so sincere or consistent in their presentation. Okay, well, thank you um, for answering that, Elizabeth. How do changes in the law favor incarcerated violent male sex offenders who transgender and their rights to transfer to women's prisons? Oh, uh, yes, this is, a, this is very controversial, and um, many of the, the laws that I mentioned do not apply specifically to incarcerated individuals, but nonetheless, we've seen a number of uh, lawsuits and campaigns to um, to bring incarcerated, you know, even violent male sex offenders into the women's prison because of their gender identity. Um, and in three of the 18 states where gender identity laws have been passed, there is something called an improper purpose clause. And what this does is it tries to prevent people from fraudulently claiming that they are women when they may not be. Um, and this goes to the consistency and sincerity that I was talking about. Um, and there is not, there hasn't been any litigation um, to determine what an improper purpose is, but I would suggest that uh, convicted sex offenders um, males who have been convicted of violence against women um, and similar things like that um, should be excluded from claiming that they are women in order to gain access 
to uh, women's sex-segregated spaces and possibly even new victims. Um, it can be very disconcerting for uh, women to have a, a male house with them. Um, there is a reason why we have sex-segregated prisons in the first place, and, and those reasons are why we, we generally don't house men with women. Um, but with the gender identity laws, it's becoming very possible for males to claim that they are entitled to be housed with women because they are women, and it's, it's primarily based on their say-so. Okay, and that's in the U.S. In the U.K., they're a bit stricter. They can be, yes. It, it, it depends on the circumstances. Could you tell us about the infamous letter to the U.N. on the status of women, Elizabeth, that... Um, you co-penned back in 2011. Can you summarize what that letter said and then what happened once it was published? Yes. Um, the letter covered some of the things that I've already talked about. Um, our concerns is the, the lack of measurable criteria for the laws and that they create a new right of access to sex-segregated spaces where none existed previously. Um, and we also covered some of the uh, ground that, that Sheila mentioned about sex stereotyping and how um, gender is a way to stratify men and women and, and asking what does it mean if someone says they're a woman, what stereotypes are they relying on to make that claim? Um, and if we change the legal definition of woman or female to merely mean how you feel, it is an erasure of the lived experiences of females and the embodied reality um, of our daily lives. Uh, so it was, it was both a legal and a theoretical critique of some of these laws. And um, I think at the time, in 2011, I may have been a little naive about the way that it would be received. I thought that it was extremely uh, balanced and fair. I thought it was very rational um, and, and that it was even a compromise position, um, but one that we felt was uh, necessary given the balancing that, that law is about. It's about balancing one, one group of interests versus another. Sometimes that requires compromises. Um, but the reaction to the letter, uh, which I, you could say it went viral on the Internet, um, was extremely negative. Uh, we were called many names. There were threats of violence. Um, it was called a bigot, uh, you know, a transphobe, anything you can think of. I won't repeat all of the, the horrible things that were said, but... Um, it was, it was overwhelmingly negative and, and surprisingly so to me. Um, and, and to this day, I still think the letter is fair and rational, um, and, and I hope people, people take a look at it and um, read the words that are in the letter rather than just relying on the reactions to it. 
Thank you, Elizabeth. And um, actually, we have a technical difficulty this evening. That's why Blake isn't on the line right now. So, Elizabeth, do you have some parting words? And then um, we're going to let you go, and we're going to have Blake come on the show. Oh, okay. Um, I guess my parting words would would be that um, separating sex from gender is, uh, you know, my website is sexnotgender.com. And um, I, I think that's a, a fundamental distinction to be made. Um, and also that uh, the, when laws are written, they should be clear and predictable rather than vague and um, overbroad as a lot of these gender identity laws are. Okay, thank you so much, Elizabeth Hungerford, lesbian feminist lawyer, joining us from Massachusetts this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so um, while we're waiting for Blake to come on the phone, Blake, are you there? While we're waiting for Blake to come on to the show, uh, Sheila, You've been deplatformed by trans activists at mainstream feminist events and conferences. Deplatforming basically means um, you have not been allowed to speak. And sometimes you've been invited to speak, but then right before you're supposed to speak, it gets you, you are uninvited. Um, how has the politics of transgenderism impacted feminist politics and and women being able to speak at fem- feminist conferences. Yes, well, uh, you're right in what's happened to me. Uh, sometimes people will suggest my name. They'll say, oh, you could have Sheila Jeffries as a speaker. And then others in that group or collective will say, no, she's a transphobe. She's a hater. You can't possibly have her. So often I don't even get a chance. And sometimes I don't even know that I've been suggested. When I am um, actually invited to speak, one uh, conference in Britain, I was invited to speak, a national conference. And actually some people then, women then joined the collective and said, no, that was unreasonable. So that conference didn't even happen. Uh, a couple of conferences, the national conferences in the last couple of years in Britain, what happens is that transgender activists um, uh, write uh, to the venue, calling me all sorts of names, saying I'm a hater, I'm transphobic, in one case saying like I was saying that I was a Nazi, in other words, like David Irving, the Holocaust denier, and that was at... Um, a Quaker Hall in London, and that Quaker Hall gave in. They decided that I, even though I'm an academic and write very recent books, could not possibly speak there. For those conferences in Britain that I'm invited to and the, and the venues get um, attacked, what tends to happen is that we find another venue and I speak. But it's very difficult for um, the feminism to be public, so it's only those who are really in the know who get to come and who get to hear my ideas or the ideas of any women who are seen as someone that the transgender activists should target. There are several other women, not very many of us, but several other women who've been targeted in this way, like Janice Raymond, Julie Bindle in Britain, Jermaine Greer, and so on. So transgender activism in this way, which often uh, online threatens uh, rape and uses death threats, it will also threaten venues. In, in one, on one occasion in, Brit- in Britain, um, a venue was told that all of the staff who worked at that venue would have their names and addresses online. So all sorts of very nasty bullying tactics 
tactics are used to prevent feminists speaking out. I'm writing a book about the history of lesbian feminism now and going back over the newsletters from the 70s. In those days, I had my address and phone number in the newsletter in London for people to come and meet at my house. That's completely impossible now. And in fact, I can't even have my name on the door of my room at the university. I'm advised by security this is unadvisable. So feminists are under siege, pretty much, unable to communicate our ideas. Uh, It won't go on. Things are already changing around, and the change is going to be pretty rapid, I think. But that's what's been happening. Okay, thank you, Sheila. So, Blake, are you on the line? Yep. Wonderful. I'd like to bring Blake Abney into the discussion to talk on a personal level about how transgenderism has played out in her life. Blake and I met and became friends at the Michigan Women's Music Festival last summer, where a historic gathering of detransitioning women took place. I attended the workshop where she and other detransitioning women presented and was deeply moved by their personal stories and testimonies. Blake, what were some of the reasons you transitioned? Well, of course I didn't realize it at the time, but later on I found out that internalized lesbophobia played a part and um, kind of people telling me, like, I didn't really seem like a girl or I didn't act like a girl because I wasn't feminine. Um, I also had started off as genderqueer or, you know, a different word for gender nonconforming. And then once I started getting more into the trans community, I ended up being the so-called true scum, true transsexual, and it ended up going the... It's hard to explain it, but basically I went from being, you know, queer in the queer scene and stuff to being true transsexual, having extreme sex dysphoria, um, even trying to go as stealth as possible and trying to figure out um, how I'd be able to even have children if my wife wouldn't know I was trans, like some way to get around that. So it was pretty bad. And Blake, why did you stop transitioning? Um, There were a few things that led up to it when I started realizing that um, my gender identity didn't really play much of a part. It was mostly my biological sex that led to me being treated certain ways. And um, a good example of that would be when I had met some guy at a place that, you know, we started talking and uh, I told him I was trans and that I didn't identify as a woman. And, you know, he played along, but eventually he ended up um, sexually assaulting me. And I found out, you know, like, it didn't really matter much. And a post that I read online was that uh, someone said, it's, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't identify as a woman, it's not going to stop someone from sexually assaulting you. And that was kind of just a eureka moment, realizing that it doesn't matter how I see myself, it matters how other people see me. All right. And are there any other stories or things you'd like to share? Um, some of my experiences with transitioning is that Um, I found that there isn't really much of a certain protocol kind of thing. It's pretty easy to get 
hormone therapy to um, get referred for surgery and stuff because my psych evaluation was just, uh, do you get anxious or depressed when people see you as female and does it lessen when people see you as male? There wasn't evaluation for trauma history, root causes of anxiety and depression, substance abuse, or anything like that. It was because it would be considered transphobic to even ask that. And within social groups, it was told, you know, that uh, past experiences of sexual trauma has absolutely nothing to do with being trans when oftentimes it does. So, Yeah. Um, I remember at the workshop at Mishfest that um, there was a lot of childhood sexual trauma that women were recovering from the detransitioning women that seemed to be a thread throughout all of your, uh, not all of your, but a lot of your stories. Yeah, and it it even goes through some of the other people's stories. Like, it might not be something that they um, let be, you know, known out in public and stuff, but sometimes if you get kind of close to them, they'll, you know, if the topic comes up, you kind of find out that they've also had past experiences of trauma. So it's kind of, it can be kind of hidden. Okay, Blake, thank you so much for for sharing from your personal experience. Um, Sheila, is transphobia a real form of oppression? Can women oppress men who are claiming to be or really knowing that they are us? No, I don't think that feminists can oppress men by rejecting men's rights to imitate women. Um, I, I think the real problem is that transgender activism threatens women's rights, as Elizabeth was explaining. But the important thing is that, that this word uh, transphobia is a real problem. The, the notion of phobia, which is some kind of um, mental problem, um, is it's an accusation that's used to deny free speech and debate. We're, we're in a time where disagreement, political disagreement, is labeled a phobia, in other words, a mental problem, or hate. And this is, these are used to shut down debate, as in accusing people of being whorephobic if they're critical of men's behavior in prostitution and prostituting women, Islamophobia, or transphobia. So what's happening is political dissidents um, are not actually phobic or hating, but the tactic of an authoritarian politics is to use those terms to shut up critics. Um, it's um, it means that it, uh, people are scared to debate. And what are people afraid of? Why why are they afraid to hear lesbian feminist voices, women's voices, uh, speaking out in favor of women's rights? I think that um, a lot of those who use these terms and try to shut down the debate have really feel that they're on shaky ground. I mean, there really is no such thing as some kind of essential gender. It's all very political and socially constructed. And I think they cannot bear to debate the ideas. And certainly with me, they do not debate the ideas. Transgender activists called me transphobic, and they all say on the Amazon website, for instance, in the reviews section, that people should not read the book. They seem to be actually terrified that people might read the book and might read serious measured criticisms of their ideas and their practices. So I think that's why they use these terms. They cannot allow criticism to be heard because actually they cannot stand up theoretically against the criticism. So what do you think are the, the steps that we need to take as women organizing a feminist movement, a real true feminist movement? What, what, what should we be doing? 
Well, of course, we need to establish the women-only principle for our organising. That's absolutely crucial. In the 70s and 80s, there was no question about this. In Britain, you know, women-only organising was exactly what happened. Men have been trying to get into women-only spaces by saying that they are women. We need to, we probably need to have some legal cases to uphold our rights to not only have refugees, prisons and so on as women-only, which, of course, they must be, but for our organising on the basis that we're organising as a subordinate group to also be women-only. So the women-only principle is absolutely crucial and really what's happening already which is that more and more feminists are actually becoming critical will eventually become a critical mass i i do think that in the future people are going to look back at this time and they're going to be amazed at what was happening. Uh, for instance, at, at this time, there's not only transgenderism being uh, supported by the medical profession, but some in the medical profession support transableism, which is cutting off the legs of men who say they feel that they ought, they ought to have one leg. There are men who say they feel they ought to have broken backs and want to be in wheelchairs and so on. There's this idea that bodies are somehow wrong, which is enlisted to harm people with, with drugs and cut up those bodies because of the idée fixe that these people have. I think that this will be stream seen as extreme malpractice in the future by the medical profession. I think gradually different groups of people are coming to see that these practices are actually not reasonable. But of course we need to be able to say these things. It's when we say them that people are starting to think, oh yes, that's a bit of a problem. But the, the attempts to shut us down have to be fought and they may have to be legally fought. Okay, great. Well, do you um, have any parting words for this evening? We have three minutes left. Left. I'd like to hear uh, a few parting words from each of you. Sheila Jeffries, fem- uh, lesbian feminist professor of feminist politics, and Blake Abney, a detransitioning woman. Uh, from me? It, it, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I think one of the things that's actually leading to the questioning of this practice is the fact that, w- that women like Blake are coming out. Uh, as the detransitioners come out, they form a sort of survivor's movement, a survivor of the oppression of this practice, which is an attack on their lesbianism and their womanhood. Sp- their speaking out is crucial. Also, there's more and more of activism by the wives who are starting to say that the practice is enormously oppressive to them. Um, so there, there are survivors' movements developing, and in the end, it is the speaking out by the survivors that has always been very important to feminism. And I think this will lead to the general rolling back of the practice. Blake, do you have some parting words? Um, I suppose just that I know that the radio show is obviously getting a lot of controversy, but I think that it would be helpful if um, people tried to look at it more as, you know, especially people who consider themselves to be trans would look at it more like trying to find an alternative way or like a better way, something that's going to actually work in the long run that's not just, you know, instant gratification sort of thing because, you know, like um, various forms of self-harm can be, you know, it can work in the short term and stuff, but when you try and, if you keep trying to do that over time, it's just going to end up being self-destruction. So it's kind of like don't take it too personally, I guess, is all I can say. Okay, thank you so much to my guests, Sheila Jeffries, Blake Abney, Elizabeth Hungerford. I'm Thistle Pedersen. I live here in Madison, Wisconsin, and I appreciate all the people who opened their hearts and their minds and their ears this evening to hear uh, what these women have, have to say. 
and I hope it increases dialogue and opens up the um, conversation in my town because it's been really challenging to be silenced and shut down and shunned and ostracized. <laughs> um, so I just thank each and every listener out there for tuning in. And, um, yeah, this is my hometown. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thank you so much, Blake. Have a great night. You've been listening to the Access Hour. Please remember that this show relies on your ideas. So call 256-2001 during business hours and lay your proposal for a show on us. Music, talk, comedy, drama or whatever can be conveyed over the radio. The Access Hour is anything you want it to be.